Thank you so, so much. Um, but this is kind of awkward. I thought we were kicking off a Christmas series. Did anybody else find those verses a little weird? J- Jen, did you maybe, did you not get the email? Did you maybe grab the wrong piece of paper? I mean, you guys did great, but I was just, I don't know, like kicking off a Christmas series. I mean, we've got the presents here. We've got the trees here. There's a fresh layer of snow. It just, I was expecting something with an angelic visitation or like a, a virgin getting pregnant. I wasn't expecting those verses. Now, of course, I'm just kidding. They did a fantastic job. Those were exactly the verses we're looking at. It's kind of awkward for verses like that to kick off our Christmas series. But that all depends. This year, we're taking a look at a series from North Point, and it's titled, Who Needs Christmas? Uh, for, you, for those of you that maybe don't know, my name is Chris and I'm on staff here at Hillcrest. I work primarily uh, with our students, um, grades 6 to 12, and I instructed them last week during our, our lesson at Hillcrest Teens. I said, hey, you know, sad news is, you know, we're joining the adults. And they were like, oh. And then I was like, but good news is I'm preaching. And they were all like, yay. I was like, you guys can all join. I want you guys all to sit in the front row. It'll be great, and I'll preach, and it'll be just like I'm talking to you. Oh. Anyway, so wherever you're sitting, Hillcrest teens, I'm glad you're here. I am still, thank you, JJ. Thank you. You, I could always count on you. That's awesome. It's awesome. Um, you know, the most difficult thing about the Christmas story is actually the Christmas story. Have, have you ever found this? There's just so much miraculous that happens, right? There's There's angelic visitation after angelic visitation after angelic visitation. There's virgins getting up pregnant. There's running from the government. There's the Lord's kind of protection. And it it just seems a bit out there, doesn't it? I remember Jenna and I were talking the one day, and specifically about this, how uh, she had childhood friends that she had grown up with. And later on in life, they began to realize that, hey, faith is something that Jenna takes very serious. And one of them, on one occasion, asked her directly and said, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that Jesus was born from a virgin? And she said, yeah, I do. But isn't it weird when someone calls you out point blank like that, and you hear yourself respond, that there's a little bit of almost like skepticism or like you realize how you sound when you say that that jesus was born of a virgin you know it's almost kind of like you're saying like if i was to come up to you and say that you know coca-cola cures cancer right nobody would believe that of course and obviously that's not true because it sounds crazy that's the difference with the christmas stories there's so much miraculous but it's true And when it comes to the Christmas story, it doesn't begin with a virgin getting pregnant or a couple that can't find a place to have a baby. It actually begins a long time before that with a couple that's pretty sure that they can't have a baby. The Christmas story doesn't actually begin in Matthew or in Luke. It actually begins in Genesis. And so those Verses that those dear sweet ladies read, 
actually paint the backdrop to the Christmas story. Now, in each of those readings from Genesis, um, there's a note of the obvious that something has gone drastically wrong with the world. You know, at first we heard about the consequences of sin as God is cursing a serpent. Then we have the intense escalation of, of human sinfulness and the disregard for the Creator where the every inclination of the human heart is evil all the time. Those are harsh words. And it's so bad in the world that it gets to the point where it actually grieves the heart of the Father. And we have the story of the flood. And then we heard the story about the Tower of Babel where there's this persistent arrogance of human independence and self-sufficiency where they band together to make a great name for themselves without regard for God. It's very clear that it is a dark and broken world where there's almost no hope at all. Almost. I love those selections of readings because it comes across very Advent-ish. And I love Advent because sometimes we hit the Christmas season and we think it's just all about celebration. And it is. It's good to celebrate with family. But there's something special about Advent where you take a real hard look at the world. That you embrace the darkness, the brokenness, and you recognize that we need help. We need saving. And while those readings are a super somber note to kick off a Christmas series, they form the backdrop for what comes next. And if we listen carefully, there's even echoes or whispers of hope in those scriptures. God's own punishment of the serpent pointed to a coming descendant of Eve who would deal the crushing blow to his head. Wow. God was grieved by humanity to the point of wiping them all out. And yet, as a seed of hope, we hear that Noah found favor with God, he and his family. Now, in the story about the Tower of Babel, we actually have to do a little bit more reading to find the echo or the whisper of hope. So where the Tower of Babel takes place in Genesis in chapter 11, uh, where there's people are coming together, it's all under one language, they're banding together and they say, hey, let's not scatter and be dispersed. Let's stay in one place and let's put our backs into building a tower that would raise to the heavens and we'll build an amazing name for ourselves. And interestingly enough, ironically as the story unfolds, God looks down and he has to come down from heaven to see this tower that they're building. It's like in all their grandeur and all their time, God still had to lower himself and humble himself to come and see what they were up for, what they were up to. And when we turn into the next chapter, there's a strong sense by now that there's very little hope that humanity is ever going to get this thing right. That it has a history of going from bad to worse and just totally disregarding God. 
But in chapter 12, something profound happens. And we can't over-preach these verses or we can't over-make a big deal about these verses because they're critical because it's the voice of God enters the picture and he speaks with clarity to one man. It's the call of Abraham. Or as we'll get to know, his name is Abraham, later changed to Abraham. But we find that God spoke to Abraham 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. And to Abraham, God made an unbelievable, incoherent, and impossible promise that Abraham chose to believe. And I'd like, I'd like to take a look at those verses. So if you've got your Bibles handy, jump into Genesis 12, and we're there at the, the call of Abraham. And, and here it goes. It kicks off with a simple instruction. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to a land that I will show you. So Abraham is told to leave everything that he's known. In ancient times, this is incredibly bad advice. I can't stress that enough. Everything that had to do with safety and security in ancient times had to do with the people you lived with, with your tribe, with your clan, with your family, with your relatives. You existed in families and in tribes in order to secure protection and safety. But Abraham is told to leave all that. So for you high schoolers out there, for my students out there, imagine attending the same school your whole life and then all of a sudden in grade 10, you switch high schools. And imagine that you walk in to Central here in Moose Jaw, but you're still repping your old school's jersey. The peacock colors, green and orange, wandering through the halls of Central. Good idea? I think not. Right? You're setting yourself up for an incredibly difficult grade 10 year. Why? Because all your peeps are gone. You're in a totally different environment now. People who believe differently, think differently, cheer differently, have different loyalties. And it can be a very dangerous situation to stand out like that. And then here we go as we move on. There's an unbelievable, incoherent, and impossible promise that God gives to Abraham. He says that I will make you into a great nation. Keep in mind, Abraham is 75 years old. He's married, and they have been unable to have any children whatsoever. Not only is not having children a source of incredible shame in, in, in ancient cultures, but at 75, Abraham would already be starting to lean into the security and provision of his family and his relatives that they give because he didn't have his own kids. And now God is calling him childless to take him and his wife and go. But he's promising to make them into a great nation. It seems unbelievable. Unbelievable that a great nation would come from this man who's 75 and doesn't have any children. And it goes on. It says that God says that, and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And here is where we tie into our previous story about the Tower of Babel. Where they aim to make a great name out of themselves, 
with disregard for God in what they could band together and what they could do in their own strength. And God even says it's pretty impressive. Nothing they put their mind to with one language, being on the same page, there's nothing they can't, they can't do if they put their name together. But here we find that God makes a promise to Abraham that he, that God would make his name great. And he called him out of his family. This wasn't something he was going to endeavor to do as Abraham stayed in the safety of his own family. But he called them out from there. That this is something that God alone is able to do. It's unbelievable that God would say that he would make his name great. That he would make him famous. I mean, if you leave your family in ancient times and go wandering off in the desert beside, by yourself, it's a great way to get forgotten rather than get made famous. And as we go on, it says, and you will be a blessing. And here's where the promise gets incoherent. We, we hear this and we go, oh, sweet, yeah, great. God's going to take Abraham and his, his, his wife and he, he's going to use them somehow to be a blessing, to bless other people. We, we read that from our, our current culture where we think it's like he's contributing something constructive to a capitalistic, consumeristic culture, right? I try to imagine myself, what is this blessing? What is it that Abraham could have done that to have been a blessing? And I think, I don't know, ancient cultures, if they probably would have given anything to have a flashlight. Don't you think? Like, there's no power, there's no electricity. Like, a simple flashlight would have changed the world, right? Or, or how about ice cream? Everybody loves ice cream. Had Abraham created ice cream, if that had been the divine download that God had given him, it would have changed the face of the world. He would have, yeah, he would have been famous, and he would have been considered a blessing, right? Till the dentist bills all start rolling in, Right? See, the reason it's incoherent is because back in ancient cultures, they didn't believe in blessing other people. Oh, they believed in blessing their family. You had to do that to survive. You wanted to look after your own. But it's not like families were going out of their way to bless other families. And yet this is what God is promising to Abraham. There's a very low value on human life. People were not in the habit of blessing other people. The world was a dark place where the strong take what they want. But God's promise to Abraham is in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. God is saying, I'm going to be a part of your story and the people that follow your story. I am going to be present to you. And it seems incoherent. And then it moves to the impossible. Here we go. He says, all and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Come on. All people blessed through Abram? What kind of extravagant, unbelievable, incoherent, and impossible promise is this? This is the divine word that interrupts an unraveling of sinful humanity that has a history of going from bad to worse. God gives a promise of blessing. Wow. God gave, I don't think that this is a promise that we can apply to our own life, where God wants to bless the whole of the human world through Chris's family line. I mean, do I think we're great enough to do it? Maybe. Not at all. 
It's just impossible. Like, I probably don't have a hope of being remembered past my grandkids or my great-grandkids possibly knowing my name. I don't have a hope of being remembered. So if we put ourselves in Abraham's shoes, he was a person just like us, where the promise comes and says, the whole world, all peoples are blessed through you. It's, it's impossible. There's no other word for it. Again, people didn't bless people. Nations did not bless nations. They conquered others. They ruled over others. They did not bless I don't know what's crazier is God's promise or Abraham's response, but Abraham believes God. He believes him. He puts his faith and trust that God will carry out what he's promised to do. So my question becomes, how does this unbelievable, incoherent, and impossible promise work out for Abraham? Well, if you're familiar with Old Testament stories and the Bible, you'll remember, miracle upon miracle, Abraham and Sarah have a son in their old age. And we're off to a great start. But there is tons of dysfunction in this family. Before they actually got to the son of the promise, they actually kind of made a bit of an error where they tried to do it themselves, the way that they thought it should be done. And they just really make a huge mess of things. Abraham also goes on, like he lies about who Sarah is. He says, you know, he comes, he's in Egypt and there's a king there and he's like, no, she's, he's worried that he's going to be killed and that Sarah's going to get added to his harem. So he says, no, she's just my sister. And they lie and it makes a big mess. Abraham actually goes off to sacrifice Isaac. I mean, on Abraham's account, God had asked him to do that. But think about if you're Isaac where your hands are being bound and you're laid on an altar and your dad raises a knife to end your life, like that would give you issues. You, you would need to talk to somebody about that, right? It's super dysfunctional. It's messed up. Well, wouldn't you know it, Isaac grows up and Isaac gets married and he has a family. And he actually has twins. He has uh, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob steals the older brother's Firstborn status. He steals the blessing. And I don't get this. It's kind of like, isn't there enough of God's blessing to go around? That, like, but no, Jacob has to steal this. And so there's dysfunction there. And then Jacob grows up and he has sons. And you'll remember the story. He has tons of sons. And they're really annoyed with their younger brother. And they decide to flip a coin. And their choices are either we kill him or we sell him and make some, some money. And they decide, we'll just sell him. So they sell off their youngest brother and they lie to Jacob and say, he died, he was ravaged by a wild animal, here's this nice cloak you gave him, and, and that's that. Does this sound like families that bless each other? Not at all. Next thing you know, a famine hits and the whole family finds themselves begging for food and living in Egypt. And it's great. There they're actually blessed. And they begin to prosper and grow with uh, nationic numbers, you could say. It's awesome. That is until the Egyptians decide to enslave them. And I don't know about you, but I, I guess this could be, a war, in a warped sense of humor, this could be the way that God wanted them to be a blessing, right? They're going to bless all people through slave labor. But I don't think that that's what God was getting at. Next thing you know, if you know your Bible history, 
comes Moses, the deliverer. And once Moses is done, nobody in Egypt's feeling very blessed. This family that was supposed to bless the whole world has ransacked and ravaged Egypt beyond recognition. Oh, this is, we're growing in numbers up here. I'm liking this. Thank you, Kira. This is awesome. And the Israelites are happy to be, be done with Egypt. Well, that is, if you read carefully, you realize they're actually, they just moan and wish that they could go back to Egypt for a long time, which is just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's short-lived. So the Israel's, Israelites wander for a while and they settle, they settle into a new land that was promised to them. Ask the nations living in Canaan if they were feeling blessed to see Israel come through a parted river. Not so much. If you know your stories, you know that there's tons of wars, there's tons of murder and bloodshed, and they basically run these people out of their land in order to take possession of the, the promised land. Lots of killing. And honestly, we, rightfully so, we have a hard time with this. But it's worth noting that, you know, Old Testament violence is not an argument against the existence or the goodness of God. Rather, it reflects a culture without God where there is very little value placed on the human life. The violence to them in ancient times would have actually seemed quite normal and run-of-the-mill. But it hits us hard. It strikes an awkward chord in us. Because, friends, we live on the other side of Christmas. We live on the other side of Christmas. Back to our story about a thousand years after God's divine whisper to Abraham's family. They become a nation, and wouldn't you know it, that nation becomes a kingdom. The kingdom of Israel. David becomes king, and he's known as the warrior king, and he establishes peace through a sword or peace through treaties, and Israel is feared and respected. They're a kingdom in a land. And under David's son Solomon, who's more of a builder king, they become wealthy and they become influential. Their place of worship, the temple, is constructed. And for the first time in Israel's history, they're perfectly situated, they're perfectly positioned to finally be that blessing God had been talking about. To really bless. But instead of blessing the nations, Solomon decides to intermarry with other nations. Not only does he marry their daughters, but he also begins to worship their gods and he breaks covenant with God the Father. And the nation is judged and as God promised, the nation is then torn in two. It's a divided kingdom with half in the north and half in the south. And they're under constant threat of implosion and invasion. And it's during these dark, disappointing days for Israel that another whisper of promise comes. And it comes through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says in 49 verse 6, it simply says this, it says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. The Lord says, I I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God adds to this promise about them being a light to the Gentiles and his salvation reaching to the ends of the earth. Wow! 
But honestly, if you were living in ancient Israel during this time, you would think, I don't really buy it. How is that even possible? A light? Israel couldn't even find their way out of the troubles that they were facing. They couldn't even get things right long enough to embrace what God has planned for them. Salvation? They're a nation that can't even save themselves. How is this salvation going to go to the ends of the world? And following this prophecy, they lose their independence to Assyria. And it's like 300 years of just absolute chaos. And after the Assyrians come, the Babylonians, under Nebuchadnezzar, they destroy the capital, they tear down the walls, they annihilate Israel's army. The temple is destroyed, just as God said it would be. The best and brightest that Israel has to offer are toted and carried off to be blessings elsewhere, to serve under a new regime. And many years pass like this, and slowly people kind of make their way back to the Holy Land, and they, they squabble together sort of a rebuilding of a temple. And another whisper comes from the prophet Malachi. And in Malachi 1.11, it simply says this. It says, My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. At this point, is Israel even listening anymore? It just sounds like wishful thinking. You know, parents with kids that play sports, how do you feel when it's, they've just got hammered hard in their second set of volleyball, and they've lost the second set, now they're down two sets. And they're just defeated. They're in their heads, they're destroyed, there's no hope. It's like the other team's got university students. And your kids are just, you know, your babies are just being pounded on. And you're there at the bench and they just look completely defeated. What is it that you say to them? Because you, you know you have to send them out there for at least one more set. What do you say to them? And you dig deep. You're just, you don't know if, they've even, if they can pull it together to steal one set from this team. But you pull it together and you offer some kind of encouragement like, hang in there. Keep your heads up. And yet, students, you've been in that spot. You've gotten that kind of coaching where it kind of falls hollow and empty because you know you're just getting destroyed. Sometimes there's a kindle of hope. There's no tractions in these words from Malachi. And actually, after Malachi's prophecy, we have him listed as the last book in the Old Testament. There's actually like 400 years of just silence where there's no prophets, there's no more whispers, there's no more, no more divine words. And if you were living in Israel at this time, you would look around and you would say, hey, we're ruled by other people. Our temple is just uh, uh, not even close to what it had been in the past you're not a great nation. Your God is not revered anywhere. And if they, as a nation, was a representation of their God, 
to God was not that great. His name would not be revered among the nations because God can't even take care of his own people. It's how it would feel. No one would listen because they've already been overrun by Assyrian, Babylonia, Persia, and now even the Greeks were coming and enters Alexander the Great. Now there's a name you remember from history. Remember him? He's the guy who rallied the Greek states and swept across the whole known world, bringing you know, the same culture and, and unifying it under one sort of authority. His name would be great, His name would ring out, not likely the name of God. And years and years later, Pompey the Great, a a Roman general, rides against Israel, and there's not much left. And he actually, uh, tradition says that he, he rode his horse all the way up onto the Temple Mount and into the temple. And he kills priests and stuff. He gets off his horse and he walks into this temple of the Israelite God and he goes into, you know, the God vault, the Holy of Holies. He wants to see what this fuss is all about. I mean, the the Israelites have always put up a good fight. They've always risen to the challenge of defending their God. They've always been staunch with that he's the only God. And so this Roman general walks up and he's like, let's have a look at what's actually here. And he rips aside the curtains and he he desecrates the holy of holies by walking into it and you know what he finds nothing it's empty the jews didn't even have an idol to represent their god he looks around and it's altogether uninspiring what a pathetic religion and with that It all comes under the Republic of Rome. So what was this word to Abraham all about? Because at this point in the story, all the nations would not be blessed through them. Israel would not be a light to the Gentiles. The Jewish God would not be worshipped throughout all the world. Were these just empty promises And when things were about as hopeless as they could get, as hopeless as they'd ever been, when the promise to Abraham was so far out of reach you could hardly remember it, let alone see it. Paul says in Galatians, he phrases it this way, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. And when everything was just the way that God wanted it to be, there's an expanding empire. There's common language and culture of the Greek and Romans. There's roadways and seaports connecting all the major population hubs. There's a Roman peace that, yes, it's tense, but it's uniting all of the civilized lands. At last, there's this mechanism through which to get the world's attention. And here comes another promise. But it looks differently. And here, Luke picks it up. In Luke uh, 1, 26 to 33. Hear this. It simply says, 
In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary, rightfully so, was greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, in the end, God kept his unbelievable, incoherent, seemingly impossible promise to Abraham. So the events of the Christmas story are not so hard to believe after all. Through the coming of Jesus, through the Christmas story, all the nations are indeed blessed through Abraham. Israel is, in fact, a light to the Gentiles. The Jewish God is worshipped throughout all the world. I'm going to invite the the band, if you want to, worship team, if you want to come out, we'll wrap up here. You see, what makes the Christmas story so believable is that the backstory is so remarkable. The Christmas story began 2,000 years before Christmas, and the Christmas story has been unfolding 2,000 years after that first Christmas. So who needs Christmas? The world did. Through Christmas, we are reminded in the most remarkable way imaginable that God is active even when circumstances argue the contrary. God can be trusted to keep his promises. And I don't know about you, I don't know where you can be found in this Advent, this Christmas season. But if you're feeling like things are about as dark as they've ever gotten, things are about as hard as they've ever been, I don't recall a time when I've been more discouraged. Hope has never seemed further out of reach than right now. I want to encourage you. God has not forgotten you. He will keep his promises to you. Would you look for it this season, this Christmas season? Would you put off discouragement? Would you put off frustration? And would you look to the one who was promised? Jesus changes everything.
Jesus changes everything. And as it turns out, the world wasn't the only one that needed Christmas. God needed it as well. But we'll hear more about that next week with Doug. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you are the one who knows how to keep his promises. That even in the midst of when we're frustrated by our circumstances and we don't know where to go for hope, you speak with your whisper, with your divine promises into those situations to encourage our hearts. And you point us to Jesus. His coming changes everything. So Lord, we just simply want to say as we're kicking off this Christmas season, uh, we want to be about what you're about. We want to be a fulfillment of those promises that you made thousands of years ago to Abraham. To be blessed and to be a blessing. But Lord, clearly it's a task that's beyond our ability to fulfill. So we need you. We need your hope. We need your encouragement. We need your direction in this season and in this time. And we thank you for the grace we have in Jesus. Amen. Can I invite you to stand and uh, sing with us? We... uh... Uh, got to hear a message a few weeks ago just about um, spiritual disciplines, about prayer and Bible reading and getting to know the Lord more through those things. Uh, and what an opportunity that we have that Jesus comes near to us, comes close to us so that we can walk with him, we can know him. Uh, imagine what it would have been like for those disciples to experience what it was like to actually be with him, to walk with him, to see him, to touch him. And uh, I pray that uh, as we sing this song, um, that would draw your heart closer to him. <laughs>